Hey everybody, welcome to the Full Frame uh, Podcast. You just oh. uh, just uh, take, stop and take it from the top one more time. Okay, okay, you ready? Hey guys, this week I Skyped in with an old buddy of mine, manager, producer, all-around filmmaker, Zach Book, who just reached his 10-year anniversary in L.A. I had a chance to sit down and chat with him about his company, All Trades Content, and his journey while out in L.A. He's got a lot of great tidbits of wisdom, so take a listen. Zach, how are you? Thanks for joining me, man. Cool, man. I'm good. How are you doing? Doing all right. Just got back from your neck of the woods. It was good to meet while you were while we were out there. Yeah, man. It was great seeing you. It's been uh, it's been quite a wild journey since uh, the last time we saw each other and talked to each other. I know. So I want to hear all about that. Um, so uh, so for people that didn't hear, when we had our previous iteration of the podcast, the Zach and Zach podcast, <laughs> a third Zach. Um, what, uh, where did you get started in film? Um, just briefly. And then like, what brought you to LA? So, um, I started in film, uh, actually I was in high school and the teacher of mine said there was live free or die hard was filming in the city. And he said, you know, I don't know what you're doing in class. You should be on set. He was joking with me, but I took him seriously. And I left school. I took the train downtown and I was on a film set for the first time. I looked like a PA. I started walking around pretending I was a PA. I started asking people for a job. Somebody gave me a job and I was on set the next morning. Little did they know I was too young to start working. And uh, those ADs worked on The Wire, which they brought me on The Wire. I worked in production for years. I went to film school at Towson. Um, I wanted to direct. Uh, Really directing and producing was my forte. uh, I was working production for years. I worked as, uh, you know, a production secretary. I had a show that took me to L.A. Uh, the show that took me to L.A., I started working for a director named Danny Cannon at Jerry Bruckheimer TV. I had an office there. I worked on three series. I was doing some second unit directing. And then um, after this, after the, uh, Danny uh, decided not to renew his contract at JBTV, which landed me kind of out in the wilderness. Hmm. Uh, but he actually recommended that if I wanted to direct that he was into acting. So I actually took a sidestep into acting because he said, look, this is something I'd really recommend to you. Um, and him and Dylan McDermott put me in Ruskin school. It was like a theater school. Hmm. And within the first two weeks I was there, I jumped into a stage play. Um, and really, that kind of changed my life because I, you know, I never thought I'd be acting. Uh, it was not the business for me, for sure. I really enjoyed it. But what acting kind of gave me was the experience of really a creative experience in your body. Um, from there, I jumped into cast. You know, I did some work. I worked on Criminal Minds. I did a couple, you know, films. I remember that episode uh, of Criminal Minds. It was Minds. not really for me. <laughs> yeah, it was. That was. You know, it was funny. It was actually, um, and tell me if I'm talking too much. Uh, Not at all. It was actually, it was actually, I remember, you know, the audition process going on and on and on. I had a manager, I had agents, I had the whole thing. But I remember when I booked Criminal Minds, it was like, I did it. It was like, there was Mm. something, I did some other things on TV, but that was like a big one. Mm -hmm. And I thought after that, oh man, I don't know, I don't know what I expected, but I thought after that something would change. It's like, no, this is what you do. You go in, you audition, you book a role, uh, and you keep doing that over and over and over again. And it's not just the being on set. You have to love the entire thing. 
And it was pretty much at that moment I was like, no, this is definitely not what I want to do. I've accomplished as much as I'd like to accomplish here. Time to move on. Um, I worked in casting for a while. Uh, from casting, I worked, uh, I met Steve D'Souza, who we last talked, wrote Die Hard, Commando, 48 Hours, Tomb Raider, you know, I mean, made Fox $2.5 billion. And he comes from an era of Hollywood that has long been extinct, but he has a way of looking at story that is unlike anything you can ever just imagine. There was something magical about it. And I remember seeing it and say, I have to learn this. I have to know exactly what he knows how to do. Um, and really, we, there, was a, there was a pitch for something that there, there was a pitch for a project that the idea was great, but the pitch really was pretty terrible. So I came in, I revamped the pitch, I went in with him in the room, and we got a development order. And from then on, for the next seven years, I worked in development with Steve. We would sell, we sold shows, we sold series, we sold movies. Um, and it really opened me up to a world, this whole dark world of the industry that you just do not get to see if you're not here. Mm -hmm. And I wish more people could understand that there is this, I mean, just production, production is the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Um, and there's this whole other world that is open. And I wish I knew that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I, you know, I'm very happy with where I am now, but I think it would have definitely guided my way uh, differently, which may have been, you know, landing me somewhere else. But um, anyway, um, well, let me, um, let I me work for Steve. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And, and as you started to work for Steve, what were some of the, lessons he imparted upon you what were some of the things he taught you you know it really wasn't so steve had its own his own lessons about script and story that were very important um such a, i mean really you can go down beat by beat i mean geez i think i just threw it away but i actually had i should have actually had this available for you but um i'll send it to you but they're basically like the way he notes up pages, mm -hmm. the way you think one thing changes the next, changes the next, um, the way he imparts his voice into the script without it coming across as amateur, he mm -hmm. balances a line. And really, at the end of the day, what he's doing is really editing. He actually said that. He said, what I'm doing is less writing it's more editing okay you cut this do this here we can start at this scene and mm. then you know we can work our way back we can cut a whole bunch of other stuff which was great to hear and know but really it was the way his manager at the time um and producers and development executives would work with him and what the process is like outside of just the story making process how do you sell the story you know and really that became 90 percent of the job Hmm. So w w did he ever take a look at one of, like, did you ever write something that he took a look at? So, yeah. So there's, so, you know, tell I me never, about that experience. I'm, sure. Well, it's actually funny because I found out later in life, I don't think we've talked about this. I found out, I mean, I always knew, but I'm very dyslexic. So writing hmm. is very hard for me. Um, I'm very visual and I can really, and hearing auditory is so much easier but basically, uh, my now wife took me to Coachella one year, 
I went with another development executive and we came back and I remember thinking at Coachella that if we were all stuck here, this would be an amazing place for a horror film. So uh, I was having lunch with this guy and I, he said, you know, we were talking about this idea and he said, you know, Guy Ritchie was looking for a, uh, like a diehard at Coachella and it wasn't ready, but I told him I had already written it. I actually said, look, this is all done. I have it ready. And Steve is totally in on this. So he can go in if he's looking for Die Hard at Coachella with the right of Die Hard. Now, little did he know, I actually had not run this by Steve yet. <laughs> uh, but I knew he would do it. Like, I knew this is something I could go to him and say, hey, listen, I, I bring him ideas. I could bring him stuff. So I went from this meeting. I called Steve. I said, listen, I have an idea. It's basically like Jurassic Park at Coachella. It's a very fun alien style thing. No one has seen. He said, sure, let's do it. Um, Andy set up the pitch who was at Veritas, um, and Steve and I really beat this thing out and we went into the first pitch and two executives really like it. One was like monster movies. Who has monster movies anymore? Now that's all they're doing. Um, now that's like really big. And I, I knew that was going to come back. So really the idea was, I knew that this was a really marketable idea and I knew if I had Steve, a marketable idea, Steve D'Souza, this company to send around, it was a pretty easy thing. I had no idea that I would be the one to actually write it. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of this pitch, you know, we, were, we had two other series that we were in development on. And he said, listen, you know, we need a script to move forward. I don't have time to write the script. I think you should do it as in I should do it. Um, and I will give you notes and, and we'll put this thing together. So I was, I thought at the time, I, I knew I didn't want to be a writer. I knew that's something that's just not my, you know, wheelhouse. But I'm thinking, I'm working for the guy who wrote Die Hard. He, you know, I have an opportunity. I have the time to do it. I have the idea. Why don't I just do it? So I did. And um, honestly, that experience taught me what it was like to sit in front of a blank page and write. Uh, it taught me how to be a writer through writing this literally with Steve, going through almost two and a half years. And eventually that got options. And eventually, um, that put me in the WGA, it made me a WGA associate member or eligible to be, mm -hmm. um, just based on, I knew it was marketable. Um, I don't want to put my name on it. I put a pseudonym on it because okay. I wanted, I wanted to sell it. I didn't want to be a writer on it. And then, and the other part is it's actually, there's a, there's a few companies that are very into this right now, mm -hmm. including one music based, uh, network that uh wants to do this as a series and um i already have a writer who i want to bring in on it um you know uh i just want to sell it i just want to produce it make it sell it um do you but yeah i think we're jumping the gun a little bit there but do you remember anything specific he told you that was like this is working this isn't working or or um was oh it is God. it just a distant past now it's two and a half years of that you mm. know and here's the thing a lot of things that he said I didn't like. Actually, there was one thing in particular. I mean, you really have to know the story to understand that a little a little clearer. Um, a lot of it where it was where it was where the story got really convoluted in the first act. And I remember we were about to submit it in and send it in somewhere, and it was just really bogged down, hard to get through. And it was you know we spent months and months and months on this first act, or really it was the first twenty pages, mm -hmm. and. I remember right before we set it in, I remember thinking, why don't we just cut this? We literally didn't need any of it. 
And we just took the whole, we lifted the whole thing and it made it just night and day better. Cool. Um, but I remember we got really bogged down in the weeds on how beat by beat we were going to introduce our lead, how we we're going to introduce, you know, our, our students, how we were going to introduce uh, the creatures. And I remember it was like we just hit the ground running literally with a driving scene. And it was like that told us everything we needed to know. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece was, you know, something he took, he almost took from Die Hard was there was an executive that wanted John McClane to have asthma. And he's like, I don't think that's going to fix the script, but there was a character in sound that she should have asthma. Like that made it a hundred percent better, mm. you know, raised the tension a lot. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember thinking that really night and day changed this thing. Um, but you know, it was, it was also, um, it was also, you know, one thing he would do that I think a lot of people do is they see a problem and instead of saying, here's the problem in your script, they'll go right to a solution. Hmm. So a lot of times when you're working with either an executive or somebody who knows story very well, they, their, their mind jumps two, two or three steps ahead and you have to decipher the note. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if the note is, you know, if they're adding something that doesn't seem quite right, you have to think, why are they saying that? And then you understand, oh, this is where they see a problem. So now we have to fix this problem. Oh, they're totally right. They're seeing it there. So a lot of times it's taking a beat and really unpacking something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. being kind of vague. So No, no, no. Knowing, you know, why, knowing why you receive a note is always a, a a good practice. I think if you're, if you're writing and rewriting, um, that's really interesting. I was just curious, uh, cause we had talked a little bit about this whenever we, we, you know, chat when I was there. Um, and, and I wanted to pick your brain about that a little bit more, but, um, so, um, if, if I can just back up a hair, um, how did you meet him? And then after you worked with him, um, how did, wh- how did you transition out of, you were, you were his assistant, correct? So, Pretty much, I, he had an assistant when I started working for him. And what happened was I was a casting associate on a sci-fi series, and his daughter was also a casting director, or was a casting direct, co-casting director. And she said, my dad is looking... I was... I have a, a pre... Um, an, an, a life where I was a, a genius at the Apple Store. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I used to be tech guy, which really was a very useful skill to bring into the industry because everybody needs help in some way, shape, or form. And that's something everybody should find, whatever that niche is they can help out with mm-hmm. that makes them valuable. Um, but anyway, he, he needed help. So I got brought in to really his daughter was like, this guy's a really creative guy. He's, I don't know how you guys are going to work together, but you guys should find something to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started working with him, and he was just open to it. So yes, he had an assistant and I was doing some assistant duties and I was fine with that. But I mean, I was an assistant seven years before I started working for him. Mm -hmm. So, and I was acting at the time as well. And it wasn't exactly something that I wanted to go back to, um, which I probably should have been okay with it. But it, 
let me, it, it gave me the ability to say, listen, I understand that you need somebody who's going to be doing assistant duties, but I, I want a position where I'm going to be more creative. Mm-hmm. Um, I need that. And I need to be working a little bit closer with the creative process. Um, so I, I would like something a little bit more. And we would find other interns who would really act as an assistant. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, it was, and by the way, most titles you see out here, whether it's creative executive development, you know, director of development, um, a lot of times what they're doing is basically assistant work um, with a bigger title. Um, some people really do get to take it. Like if you're at a studio and you get director development, like an actual studio with money. Yeah, no, you're going to be reading scripts, giving notes and doing like an actual job. But, you know, for the most part, I, I, I wanted to take uh, uh, advantage of he has a WGA company uh, that was producing films that were selling things. And I was okay doing those duties, but I needed a, you know, a title that could get me to the next stop, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what it did. But, you know, you had to be very, uh, mindful of where your opportunities are, but yeah, sorry, long winded answer. No, but I like, that's interesting to know, like going in, you have to be very forthcoming with, you know, this is what I want out of this relationship. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, and they understand that, you know, they understand you're not going to be doing this forever. Um, Mm -hmm. and it kind of comes into something, you know, you and I have talked about before where, you know, if you want to be doing something specifically in the industry, you have to do that. Yeah. You know, you, you actually, uh, and I remember Danny Cannon, who I'm actually having lunch with next week, who was my first boss out here. He actually told me, you know, when I wanted to be a director and I was his assistant, he said, I would never hire you to direct an episode of TV just by you being my assistant. You know, you actually have to do the job and I have to see that you can do the job because my job is on the line. Mm -hmm. So you have to put yourself out there to do that. And that's actually why I got into production, how I met Christina was because they said, you should meet people on set who also want to work on films and make your film and do your, your thing. Um, and uh, it and, also comes down to, yeah. And Danny is a producer like on CSI and stuff like that? He directed the pilot for CSI. Cool, very he also cool. Di- he directed Judge Dredd. He directed uh, uh, nice. How I, um, uh, he directed a lot of film or a couple films, but he is the EP director on Gotham, Pennywise, uh, Pennyworth. Um, and um, he's, he's very much uh, directing Darling at Warner Brothers and CBS. And, you know, he gets shows made and he's, he's very smart. He's, he's, he's a great guy, too. And he is no BS, you know. Very cool. He, he's, and I really respect that. Yeah. Well, um, so after you were um, with Steve, um, where did you transition to next? So um, a director friend of mine... Uh, who helped bring me out here actually said uh, there's a company that um, was management production, wanted to act as this kind of micro studio Mm -hmm. uh, that was looking for someone to work with them. Um, And he was thinking that based on my work with Steven and based on how I've worked with him in development, that management could be a really great, uh, niche for me 
because managers can really do anything. We can produce, we can rep clients, we can do development, we can do anything, um, whichever way our business sees fit. Now, there's some managers that say, this is the box I like to fit in. Um, I was very resistant to it because of the perception I had of reps and what most people think of reps. Um, I didn't know what really was available and the way I wanted to work at this company was more a, de a director of development um, and develop and sell and produce and bring things in, which is what I did. What I didn't know is really what they needed at the end of the day was an assistant. And what they sold me was a bill of goods that said, you know, you can produce, you can manage clients, you can um, develop. We want you to do all, we want you for all of that. Um, but you can, you can do coordinating, um, you know, on the back of your, in the back of your head, you know, and we'll give you whatever title you want, but we just need someone who's going to do all of that. Mm -hmm. So really I ended up selling myself to full, four full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, I mean, literally it almost killed me. Um, but I, um, I learned a process that moved me to what I'm doing now. Um, and it taught me that everything I've done for the past really 15 years almost um, is, is all what I'm doing right now. And mm -hmm. I'm running my own company. But yeah, I'll give you a beat to unpack that. Well, yeah, well, and I, I want to hear about all trades as well. So um, wh uh, where did the impetus to start your own company come from? What were the logistics of that? And then also like, what uh, what is it that you love about running all trades? So the experience I had last year was, and I'm sure people have their own experience with this. Um, I, I uh, there were some working environments and people who I worked with that I would never want to be engaged with. I would never want to do business the way some people prefer to do business, and that's their own prior uh, prerogative. That's my own prerogative. Um, but I, I pretty much said, you know, I, there's certain things I will do. There's certain things I won't do. And I worked with some people that I thought were immensely talented that, um, were, did not feel like they were, did not feel right about where they were. And, you know, I think it comes from the perception of value. You know, most agents who come up or most executives who come up through the agent trainee program have a sense of value into numbers and elements um, that could be perceived as more valuable than they are. And my experience in creative led me to the assumption that the creative is the most valuable thing we have in the industry. That is where... That is everything. That is why Apple, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon are making deals with the creators themselves mm -hmm. um, and not with the agents and not with the business makers. Um, they have those on staff. So I, I really, you know, after, after a really traumatic experience I had last year around the time I got married, I'm so happy I got married when I did. Um, I said, you know, I'm, I'm either going to do business the way I want to do business or I'm going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. and I'm going to do something else. I don't know what it is. So it was really like, you know what? I got nothing to lose. Um, I have all the contacts. I literally have everything, everything I need. I have 
amazing writers, directors, IP, projects that have reverted to me, um, things that I know are valuable that will be that are making money. And, you know, if I give this my all and it doesn't work out, it's no harm, no foul. But I have everything needed to make a giant leap of faith. And um, it's almost like things started happening that it was like winning the lotto one after the next, after the next. It was like I was getting lucky, just something else was working for me. And I, I don't know what was happening. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 funny enough, I went to my Towson alumni event um, and I re-met a writer-director couple who were writer-directors on The Wire. Hmm. Um, and we started working together very shortly after and they started working and, you know, I, money was coming in and I needed tax wise. I had to really start my company. Um, and then, you know, movies that I was, you know, that I have option to produce are now have legs on them. Um, series that, need to be packaged that are either at a studio that uh, need elements. I'm now bringing showrunners on for, I needed a place to set meetings I needed a place to bring people to. Um, and it was really based on the needs of the business and less on the, my desires hmm. that I was reacting to. So, you know, um, and that's really what I'm doing. I, what, what, when I call Blumhouse and say, Hey, you know, I, I'd like to put a project on your radar. I just want to see what you may be looking for. You know, is this right for you? What are you doing? And then all of a sudden that conversation leads to something else. I'm not servicing myself. I'm servicing what their needs are. Hmm. And they don't feel like I'm being silly or pushing them something. And also, because I really love the stuff I'm sending out, they trust my taste. Totally. Which is a big deal. So where um, did, did those projects that initially started all trades, were those things that you were getting off the ground prior to leaving your last job? Or were they things that like you were doing on the side that maybe like eventually became part of your business? Uh, how, did, how did that all come about? So a bit of both. Um, there was projects that I developed with Steve that are taking some legs that mm. I brought into this other company um, to move forward that I did move forward under the assumption that, that financing was part of the company I was at and found out that that was actually not the case. Um, so, you know, I, I, I was able to get these projects back to me. Um, and there was one project in particular that I did that was passed on by this company and I had found it it was given to me and I said, you know, honestly, it was funny because the pitch material was god awful, but the, you know, something said, because the script could be like, if this story, the story was too good. And if, if the story was well written, then um, I should read it. And I just said, look, I'll just read a few pages. If, if, it, if, if, if they don't know how to write, it'll be clear. But the first two pages were so good. I got to the end of the first script. And I was literally in tears. Hmm. And uh, there was, you know, multiple. And I, I, I remember coming to my bosses at the time and saying, I'm going to set this up. And, you know, there were they were extremely hesitant because it was A period and B limited series, which are 
you know, it's like no goes. You don't call studios with those under, you know, if you're an agent, you're like, oh, why would I go out with this? It's, I don't have that much of a, uh, it's too risky. Hmm. But for me, I was like, this story has to be told. This story is too good. Um, and it's very well written. It's very timely. And once I, and I, and I, I got, I was, I had it going. I had legs with it. It was every company in town who read this was like, this is amazing. All I did was pull the pitch material away and said, just read the first two pages. Mm. If it's for you, it's for you. And that's another thing. It's like, how do you, how do you distinguish yourself as to people who have thousands of things to read? How do you say, how do you set the table and then say, just read this mm -hmm. um, and get them to do it and understand, Oh, this is why they're bringing it to me. Um, and it's just about so, yeah. finding those companies that need that or that are looking for that specific thing. Kind of, kind of, you, you know, you definitely want to target certain companies that like, this is what's right for them. But um, you have to meet them halfway. Sometimes you don't, you can't just force things on them. Sure. Um, sometimes you have to, you know, say, listen, I know what you're doing right now. This may be a little bit off, uh, off target, but, um, you know, what, what if we did this like this, would this work for you? And they're like, huh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and it kind of creates a life of itself based on what someone may be looking for. Um, but anyway, the rights holders of this specific project said the reason why they wanted to go with us was because of the passion I was bringing to the project and that's what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. So they said, we don't want this to be just a business thing. We could do this in another country and get that taken care of. We want to do this with someone who believes in it. So they said, look, we're, we're, whatever you want to do, we're, we're happy to uh, make that work. And mm -hmm. initially I tried to make it work with my old company and they were not open to that. Um, so I had to, you know, I had to do either what was right for the rights holders who I was representing. Um, and it was, it was definitely a, uh, a situation where I had to really question what is the morally right thing to do here, uh, based on everyone's perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I feel like it was a great exercise in balancing a really tricky line. Um, but I'm very happy with the way, uh, it was me, myself, the rights holder. Everyone's very happy with the way it was handled. Um, and I think we have an even better shot at an even better opportunity now that it was handled the way it was handled. Cool. I want to, well, I have a few things, but uh, first, I, I, I do want to talk eventually about um, how you acquire and curate material IP writers and clients. But uh, first, I have to say, um, while I'm thinking of it, you had um, two separate stories where you said the pitch material or the pitches were awful. Could you outline like what made them not good and what you think makes a good pitch? I, I don't think there is any formula to make a good pitch. I, I think I think that's actually why both were bad was because somebody was saying, "Well, this is the formula to make a good pitch." Mm. I think what you need to understand is the audience of who's reading the material. What you're doing is you're creating an on-ramp for somebody to say, I understand why I want to put my time into this. That's pitch material. Pitch material isn't, well, there's the deck, there's the one pager and there's this. Yes, this is all good material to use, 
But sometimes it's just simple as I don't have any of that, but I have a 15 minute verbal pitch for you where we can talk about exactly what this project is. And sometimes even if you have the script and the deck and the pitch and all of this other stuff, that's the best way to do it hmm. because you're literally sitting down with someone and you're, you have their full attention and you're saying, so this is a story about somebody who saved 100,000 people. It's a true story. And it's like all of a sudden, right then and there, you, you, you have them. And it's storytelling in almost like an audition fashion. Hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, an executive needs to read a one-pager and you need to be very careful where you give them just enough information but not enough to say, eh, I can't do it. Sometimes you got to be very... It's, 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 you know, when, they, when, Apple, when Apple used to design pro products, they used to say it's like peeling an onion and stripping away all, you know, years and years and years away of finding what is the center of the onion, what is the most simple thing. And that somehow you have to get to that. That's pitch material. Mm -hmm. um, I think people get really, and I, and I notice mostly directors, get really caught up in this idea of shooting a sizzle or shooting a, uh, a short to represent the project. And really at the end of the day, my experience with that is it's not, uh, for most projects, that's actually not helpful and actually more harmful because mm -hmm. you want someone to look at something and say, that's an accurate representation of a series. And when you're going up against shows like Game of Thrones, you put something on a screen and say, yeah, no, just imagine we had the budget like Game of Thrones and it's like that. That's too much of a stretch for someone to say, okay. Hmm. So sometimes literally a one-pager that says an elemental feel for this is what we're going for, that's, that's what you need. Okay, well, that's fascinating to me. I could talk about that for forever. But let's, let's switch gears again back to uh, how do you find IP? How do you curate... Um, different um, scripts and, and clients and wh wh what's the core of that? If I connect to it, if I connect to it, if I read something, also if someone has a personal story that I'm like, I, I'm, I'm going to root for this guy. I have a guy who he is, I met him last year. We became friends very quickly I read something of his that I thought was brilliant mm -hmm. and he was with CAA and young guy, you know, early thirties. And I, um, I, I, I was like, I knew I, I knew I wasn't a writer because I read something this guy wrote. And I'm like, if this guy is doing this day in and day out, there's like, that's someone who's designed to write. Um, mm. But also you meet with him. And he comes from this story of he was a paraplegic at one point um, and he wrote himself out of his disability as a means of therapy. And you just get a sense of that. Hmm. You get a sense of that when you read it. And when you talk to him about real life issues, he has no delusions about where he is. He has no delusions of, you know, one day being Jonathan Nolan or Chris Nolan or being a showrunner or anything, he'll actually tell you, even though other writers, like he has massive writers who are like, no, you are the real deal and we want you on things. He's like, I don't really want to be a showrunner. I just want to be in a room writing with other people. He's the most humble person, but you read his stuff and you're like, this guy, this guy has it. Mm. Um, 
And then, you know, there's people like uh, the woman who I rep who was from The Wire, who I literally, she sent me a bunch of things and everything, one after the other, the next after the next. She was connecting into something that's just important. That's, she, she's an amazing writer. I, I, I'm comfortable putting my reputation on the line for it. Um, then there's some people who have great ideas who I, I can't sell everything they have. Hmm. You know, some people are, they want you to, because they're like, what about this? What about this? And I I have to be honest and say, you know, that's not for me. And you don't really, at the end of the day, you don't want me calling an executive and saying, I have something for you because the way I'm going to sell it isn't going to be great, but you have something else where I'm like, this is fantastic. And it's a, it's a tricky line, Hmm. you know? Um, and most agents are more like, this is a product I have, take my product. Yeah. Whether they like it or not, they don't know if it's good or not. I have to believe in myself. I have to believe in if I'm going to call any company, then my reputation for every other client I have is on what I'm giving to them at that given moment. Yeah, no, to make it personal, that's really fascinating. Are you still in, in a producerial way, are you still making your own kind of content? Are you still going, hey, now I have this writer, I would love for him to tackle this subject or this idea I have. Are you still doing stuff like that? All the time, all the time. That's, I mean, I'll tell you, I love management because I, I love supporting the people I work with mm-hmm. and being a cheer, and just being, a, I'm the guy who, you can go and write and take care of exactly what you want to do. And I'm going to back you up no matter what that means. Like I'm going to get your stuff out there. I'll get you in meetings. I'll come to the meetings with you. Um, And I love doing that. It also gives me the ability to say this project I want to produce Mm -hmm. this project. And I have those, I have a few projects where I'm like, you know what? I can't do anything with that. Um, but I understand I can, I can help set it up and sell it. Mm-hmm. But this one, um, I'll, I'm going to find a showrunner for, and I have. We're going to package it up, and we're going to go to the pitches. Um, and, you know, the monetization of that is, you know, if I sell a – if I'm repping someone and not producing it, then I, you know, I get 10% of whatever, whatever this person makes. Um, if I'm producing something, I don't get paid unless it goes into production. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can sell something to a studio and it not go into production. So you really have to be, um, you know, it, it's a long shot. And, you know, look, I, I have I have an office, I have rent, I have things I have to pay for. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody who has done anything great has not done it great without taking some big swings and I'm, I'm definitely taking some big swings. Cool. Are there any that you can tell us about right now? If not, it's okay. I'll tell you that there's a project I developed with this writer last year that goes after the prison system. Hmm. And we are going after it as 1984 meets Atlanta and Oz. And everybody who has read it has been just blown away by it Mm -hmm. and we we have some serious momentum going with it um and potentially there's an actor who read it who has pretty much all but signed on that is one of my favorite actors right now um i'll keep you posted as that one comes around i'd love to hear there's another 
there's another series there's another feature that i've opt that i've actually purchased so you know a lot of managers want to produce but they don't want to put their money out there hmm. so i i was working with a, you know someone for a while and he has really felt run down by the industry and you know for if you really want to produce something the right way to do it is to option the material and or at least put a shopping agreement together if you don't rep them mm-hmm. and say i i believe in this so i i put money up for it and it's a contained alien invasion film in a way that you've never seen it before hmm. and there are three major studios doing horror films right now that are in serious consideration for it um and that's that's another one but there's a few like this and there's an animated project as well but cool. you know yeah would you say that those are the and and we hear about this like it's the one location the self-contained thriller horror suspense that's selling would you find that to be accurate um yeah yeah um as long as it's the the buzzword in rooms nowadays is elevated horror so if it is you know if it's an elevated uh and i and you know you you can perceive that any which way you'd like but as long as it's um i was with an executive from atomic monster which is james wan's company and he was saying the way they find material is it's very smart and uh what that means is there is there is a true heart to this story um and a soul and you follow, you know, it's wrapped up in this nice candy shell, but at the end, there is a, you get your catharsis. Mm -hmm. There is a cathartic moment. It doesn't, you know, there's a lot of stuff that is very dark, um, that, you know, has a very down ending, but, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a complexity to it. There's a, there's, um, emotional complexity to it. Yes, contained, hard, smart, and there's many which ways to slice it, but um, just make sure the heart and the soul is there. Cool. Cool. So um, is there, uh, w- w- what's next for all trades? Like what, what do you want? What do you aspire for the, your company? I would say once one of these projects go, um, it's more of a studio, more of a production company. Um, cool. I don't want to bring on, I, I like representing <laughs> the people who I represent right now. I could represent them for the rest of my life, but really at the end of the day, a good rep, I feel like is more like a business partner who um, manages your development company. So almost, you know, most of my clients who have, they could be their own companies mm-hmm. and I would like to kind of like Aaron Kaplan. Um, I'd like to have multiple shows on the air that I'm producing. I'd have, I'd like to have films um, kind of like I, I'm very close with Alan Gasmer. I like what he's doing right now. Um, you know, I'd like, I love the creative process and being able to, you know, give a here. This is the direction we're looking to go in. Um, go, go run with it. Um, and um I'd like to build out that way. Um, I'd like to still remain a filmmaker uh, while operating 
creating a business. That's cool. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, and, 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 and this is what, like, I, I, I picked your brain about most when I was there, but, um, what, um, what sorts of advice can you lend to, uh, people, um, who want to make the move to LA or who, who don't realize necessarily, like you said, like production is just an iceberg, the tip of the iceberg. And this is like, there's so much more that goes into it. Could you talk about that and like what advice you have for those people? Um, you know, in The Wire, there was this, I mean, I think anybody who's seen The Wire knows of this scene. I actually have a poster coming in about it, that uh, two characters are teaching each other how to play chess. One is teaching the other how to play chess. And um, one says, you know, the pawn can be the queen. And they says, how do you be the king? You can never be the king. You have to be born the king. Um, and... I would say I think the way most people attack the industry if they want to be a director, writer, producer is they start as either an assistant or something else and they believe, sometimes rightfully so, that they can work themselves up the notch. Um, I actually think that you just have to do it. And I know that's really tough to say because, well, we don't have financing. Well, we don't have X, Y, and Z. Well, anybody who doesn't have any one of those things finds out how to get it and I would say that before you can be ready for a rep, you have to go through that process of financing something, being responsible for at least $100,000. Somehow you find the money because everyone does that. Somehow you make the movie. Sometime, somehow it gets out. Somehow you get distribution. Then once you've done all of that, all right, now somebody else is going to trust you with their money. Mm. Um and, you know, it's very easy place to come from to say, well, I'm not a financier. I don't know how to do it. But, you know, you got to figure it out. So when, when we met, you told me um, the first one's on you, uh, quote. Um, and that basically means, like, if you want to write, if you want to direct, if you want to produce, like, make sure that first one happens and it's on you. Yeah. So um, a manager who I very much trust, who is a legend out here, you know, he gave me some advice as far as finding people and he, and I think it's instrumental and it, that is the first one is on you. Um, and it's, you're not ready for a rep. You're not ready for whatever you think you're ready for until you've done that first thing. Um, whether it's creating your first feature mm -hmm. and selling it and getting it distributed. Um, whether it's, you know, if you want to be a writer, writing it and getting it sold yourself whether it's, you know, whatever these things that most people think, well, that's chicken and egg, it's catch 22. How do I do one without the other? Well, that's how everyone who really has done it before you has done it. Mm -hmm. And by figuring it out, it forces you to do the motions that a manager would do or a producer would do. So you understand their job. So you mm -hmm. don't just pass it off and say, well, I'm only good at directing or writing. This is just what I'm good at. I can't do the other stuff. Well, no, that's an excuse. Learn how to do it and then actually successfully do it and then get someone else to do it with you next time who trusts that you're going to get it across the finish line. I would actually say if I was to go back and do anything in school, I would have been a business major um, okay. because, you know, and maybe minored in film or take some film classes because, you know, I think what I learned in my experience going through film school led me to where I am right now. Um, it's a business. Um, and you can still learn that. And that's how, what I did was I, I bought books. I did audible and I just listened to, 
as many business books as I could. I watched business people. I watched people handle their own business. And if you look at James Cameron, Martin Scorsese, Chris Nolan, um, really any Ridley Scott, they run businesses. Mm-hmm. They have made businesses out of filmmaking. And that is a, nobody talks about that. Um, and that's really important. Um, as far as the other jobs out, I mean, really, if you are able to do all of the other jobs yourself, you understand that, okay, Ridley Scott has a company of creative executives and development executives uh, who read material, who, who shop first look and overlook deals at studios, who run different parts of their company. Um, and you really get a sense of the, the intricacies that somebody spends full-time jobs doing that one specific thing yeah. um, and having a real top-down approach and saying, wow, if I look at, at Scott Free's list of executives, I know what their day-to-days are mm-hmm. and I understand how important that is. Um, so, you know, and it's, it's, you know, I talked to somebody yesterday at F. Gary Gray's company who was an assistant who worked in accounting who she's been doing this for 25 years she worked in casting she went back to philly and she it took this roller coaster and her story is amazing and incredible and it taught her how to read material and be and taught and this is why f gary gray trusts her um but it really took this whole uh, roller coaster to get a perspective of what else is out here. Mm -hmm. Um, Really expanding your awareness beyond the tunnel vision of your project. That's what I would tell filmmakers. Really look at, really try to get a sense of the map of the whole world because it's a big world. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Well, hey, I know you have to go. Um, Thank you for lending an hour of your time to us. Um, If uh, if people want to go and follow you or follow All Trades, where can they go, man? you know what? I mean, I, I, I would throw out if people wanted to email me, you can, I have an, uh, the, the assist account, which is on and off by, by a remote guy until he's done from school. Uh, and I, I will look at that occasionally. Um, it's assist at all trades content.com. Um, LinkedIn. I've found people and projects through people who have sent me stuff on LinkedIn. Wow. Um, like, uh, it's called how my gay uncle fucked up Christmas in case, uh, uh, it's, uh, you couldn't read the video. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and through you, I'm sure we'll, me. We'll, we'll stay updated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, brother, thank you again for lending your time and, um, and yeah, and, uh, appreciate you, uh, lending some advice as well. Anytime, man. Thank you so much. And, uh, hopefully I'll see you next time you're out here.